Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, Fearless. I remember trooping around in the field behind my house as a little boy, and I was fearlessly hacking down all the bad guys until a swarm of grasshoppers covered me from head to toe. I was suddenly not so fearless. Paralysis might be a better word. This might sound preposterous, but as believers, we should never be fearful. Why? The Almighty stands as our defense and fortress. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. See the title, Fearless? That sort of fits almost like I'm creating a, a collection of messages. I have immovable, unstoppable, and then if I was going to throw in gritted teeth, the man of white knuckles, and then fearless. Sort of the collection that we're getting. And so one of these days we're going to need to box that up into some DVD set uh, because this is, this is a very significant portion of that. Now most, most of the words I just said, by the way, let's review them real quick. Immovable. Does anyone actually expect to be immovable in their Christian walk? I mean, come on. Let's be realistic here. We are being pushed around by the powers of the devil. We live in a hostile natural world where things want to take our bodies down. I mean, the natural cause and effect relationship with your body in this natural realm is deterioration. Going to be immovable? That's laughable, isn't it? How about unstoppable? That the agenda that God has given you will not be quelled. That it will be pressed forward in this generation and nothing will be able to stop it. Well, that's again laughable. Look at the church of Jesus Christ. They have their great ideas and their missions and none of them are being accomplished. We're the laughing stock of our culture. Unstoppable. And then I'm going to add this one to it. Fearless. I want you to realize that the basis of my confidence and my preaching is not what I've witnessed around me, it's the Word of God. If you base your understanding and your confidence in what God intends to do in the church of Jesus Christ, in what you've experienced and what you've witnessed, you will not live a biblical life. You live that which is proclaimed in Scripture. Now, supposedly, because in that, that movie, what was it called? Facing the Giants. Remember this coach comes in at the very end and says, you know, it says in that there's 365 mentions of the fact that you should not fear uh, in the Bible. Now, I've never counted them, but you know, that's a lot. So I have my own little collection here just to get us warmed up. The Lord is their light and their salvation, so whom shall they fear? The Lord is the strength of their life, so of whom shall they be afraid? Though a host should encamp against them, their hearts shall not fear. Though war should rise against them, they remain confident in their God. Because God will never leave them nor forsake them, and he ever lives to make intercession for them. God is their refuge and strength, the very present help in their trouble. Therefore, they will not fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. And no weapon that is formed against them shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against them in judgment shall condemn. God shall condemn. The Lord is on their side. They will not fear. What can man do to them? Who's the them? That's us. Who shall we fear? God is for us. Who can be against us? This is the tenor of the entirety of Scripture. Now, I realize most of us have never lived this way. Most of us succumb to fear without even a fight. When anxiety and fear come knocking, 
we just subside into silence and say, well, it's my lot in life. That's just one of my idiosyncrasies in my personality. I fear. And I would like you to know, and this is my straight shooting uh, Eric Ludy uh, talk today, fear is a sin. Therefore, to yield to it is not a personality thing, it's a sin thing. Anxiety is a sin. Be anxious for nothing, is what it says. Have miramnao is the Greek word, or an anxiety, a care, a fear, a trepidation, a foreboding for nothing. You are not the enemy's plaything. You belong to Jesus Christ, therefore you will not be moved. You will not fear. God is not the one that gives fear. It is very clear in Scripture where fear comes from. It comes from the enemy. God is not the author of anxiety, at least the kind of anxiety that is burned for self within, self-preservation. It's the enemy that attempts to woo you to burn the care, the anxieties, and the fear of self and for what might happen to you and to those that belong to you. And we fall for it all the time. Remember the name of this message? Fearless. So either the Bible is exaggerating and it's just waxing eloquent and poetic, or it means what it says. And if it means what it says, you shall have no fear. Not a bit of it. Okay, let's go back in time. Eric Ludy is in the hospital at the age of 28 with a, an, anxi an anxiety disorder. Okay, so the one actually giving this message 13 years ago was in the hospital with an anxiety disorder. Okay, my body, I had no idea how to handle anxiety. I felt like I was a victim to it. I remember actually the moment in my life when it was the first year of our marriage, right at the very close of that first year, we were packing up, moving to Colorado, and I remember I had forgotten to put the grill in the truck. I'd packed the truck, closed, it was one of those rider trucks, closed it, got the lock on it. I was so stressed out because my stuff had been strewn all over Michigan. I was picking it up one little piece at a time. I got it all in, crammed the door closed, and it was sort of like, oh, I cannot handle any more of this. Then I walked into our little condo and looked through the glass door in the back, and there was my grill. And I fell down on the ground and yielded to a paralysis of anxiety. I literally was laying there, and I couldn't speak. Leslie was like, what's, what's wrong with you? It was pathetic, is what it was. And I was controlled for a good chunk of my life by anxiety. There would be times when I was about to come out and speak to thousands of people and I would be in the green room laying on the floor with anxiety. I had every trial and challenge that would come into my life. I was on the front lines of Christianity. However, I accepted anxiety right with those trials and as a result, I would fail in the trial. Because you cannot, you cannot succeed in a trial when you are riddled with anxiety and fear. This literally undermines your ability to be confident in the face of challenge. And so there I was, and if you were to look at Eric, if we were to somehow have some measurement of his internal strength rating, how much difficulty he can handle, when you have a trial and you handle it correctly, you'd see eh, your strength will increase, and your inner man will actually have more muscle for the next challenge. However, if you take that challenge and give way to anxiety and fear, you gain no strength. In fact, oftentimes you are weakened, and your soul becomes more vulnerable. Fear and anxiety weaken the soul. 
It makes you more vulnerable to the enemy. And technically, it is a ticket, a legal ticket in, an access for the enemy into your life to harass you. And the way the principle works in the kingdom of darkness is when the enemy can bait you towards a lie or a behavior that is against God's nature, against God's commands, which to fear is against God's command. Fear not, is what God says. So when we fear, we are literally in breach legally of what the king has commanded of us. So what happens is there's a breach that is made in our wall and the enemy legally is able to step in and build a little campfire. Now I know that sounds harmless. What's a campfire? Well, a campfire will turn into a little campsite if you do not remove it, if you do not repent of that and make it right. And that little campsite will turn into a little small village if it is not removed. And that village will turn into a mighty walled city, which is known in Scripture as a stronghold, if it is not removed. And in the church of Jesus Christ, we have a stronghold of fear that controls the church. This ought not to be. So, the Lord is on our side. We will not fear. What can man do to us? The fear of sudden attack. Now, I am going to get specific there is a foreboding that I believe is a very common thing in the church of Jesus Christ today. And it is the reflection of the meditation on worst-case scenario. In other words, if this were to happen, then. If this actually means this, then this could mean this. Okay, it's called foreboding. You know what it says in Scripture about foreboding? It says it is as a sin of witchcraft which means it's a foretelling of your future, but not in God's foretelling, not in God's agenda, not in actually what he's wanting to bring about, what the enemy is wanting to bring about in your life, you're buying it. And you begin to fret and to forebode and to be anxious about something that's not even true. It's not even real. It's a classic thing that the enemy will try. Back in the days of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is building a wall. And so here we are talking about a breach in a wall, which fear is. Well, the walls of Jerusalem were laid flat. They were just rubble. And as a result, Jerusalem had no defense. Nehemiah is coming in, and they're rebuilding the wall. In the process, the enemy came out of hiding. There was an enemy that did not want that wall rebuilt. Sanballat, Tobias, and Geshem the Arabian. They literally were doing whatever they could to hinder the building and the construction of that wall. And so they, we have a message at Ellerslie, it's called the Nine Lies, and it literally goes through the nine attempts of Sanballat, Tobias, and Geshem the Arabian to undermine the formation and the construction of that wall. And so in the process, one of the lies is this one, that suddenly, out of nowhere, you will be devastated. In other words, yes, you can do all this wonderful stuff for God, but at any moment, the enemy can come in and absolutely destroy you. I want you to realize that what I'm about to go into is a very, very common thought process amongst us as Christians. And I want you to realize it's completely, wholly unbiblical. The enemy does not have a legal right to do whatever he desires to do in your life. He may want to destroy you, but he can't destroy you if... I'm going to leave the dot, dot, dot after that open for a second because that's the message. If... If you are as you ought to be in him, you are fearless. Why? Because you're untouchable. You are not available to the enemy for him to just do with, to experiment upon, 
to laugh and to torture you, okay? Now, I know as I go through this, some of you could say, well, what about Christians being thrown into prison? You know what? I want you to realize that's a different classification. That is suffering for the glory of King Jesus. But what we're talking about first is suffering for the glory and the smirk of the enemy. And there is no such thing in the kingdom of heaven. The fear of sudden attack. This is what was said to Nehemiah. Afterward, I came unto the house of Shemaiah, and he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us shut the doors of the temple, for they will come to slay thee. Yea, in the night will they come to slay thee. I want you to realize, maybe the enemy hasn't spoken in King James English to you. And maybe he doesn't use the word slay. But I want you to take the word slay, and I want you to exchange it out for the words that the enemy has used to you. They will come to slay thee. Yea, in the night will they come to slay thee. And I said, this is Nehemiah's response. I mean, just think, if someone's coming in the night to slay thee, this is good counsel. Why don't you go and hide in the temple? Close the door. Fear for your life. And I said, should such a man as I flee? And who is there that being as I am would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in, and lo, I perceive that God had not sent him, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me, for Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Therefore was he hired that I should be afraid. Okay, so here we have a situation where Nehemiah is doing something in concord with what God is intending to do in Jerusalem, and that is to rebuild the walls. When you take a step forward of obedience in your Christian walk, and you begin to ally yourself with God's agenda in your life, I want you to realize hell takes notice. And hell will do whatever it can to stop the forward progression of your soul. There is nothing worse on planet Earth to the enemy than a fortified Christian. A Christian who is dauntless, fearless before the enemy and moves forward without concern of what the enemy can do to him because he cares only of that which his God is about in this earth. And so what we have is we have this concept of therefore was he hired that I should be afraid. The enemy will do whatever he needs to do to try and stimulate fear in your life and do so in sin. In other words, if he would be afraid and do so in sin, that they might have matter for an evil report, that they might reproach me. If they could get him to fear and be afraid, they would have matter for an evil report that they could reproach Nehemiah. They will come to slay thee. Okay, this is just classic enemy. Okay, and I'm just going to unfurl some of the thoughts. You will have an accident. This is such a ridiculous mentality to have, but I want you to realize... I do not want to treat what has been going on inside of your soul as just ridiculous. I want to treat it as something that is a very real threat to you. But I I want you to realize that it's the equivalent of me being afraid of that clock coming flying off the wall and hitting me in the face. It is not based on reality. It is based on something called foreboding. Okay? It is not based on truth. You will have an accident. A lot of people live their life with fear of this one thing that, yes, everyone else is safe, but they will have an accident. And it's just waiting to happen someday in their future. Everyone else gets to live long into their elder years, but not you. You will have an accident. Have you ever questioned these words? Have you ever poked at them and said, are those coming from God or from the enemy? I'm here to tell you right now, they are not coming from God. 
They are not coming from God. You will catch a fatal disease. You know how many women fear the fatal disease? They do not want to be the one laying in the bed and everyone's whispering, oh, the poor thing. But they have this concept that they will be the one that will catch it. Everyone else might survive, but they would be the one to catch it. You ever question this? Where is this coming from? God wants you to be focused on truth that isn't truth. This thing that happened to them will happen to you. You know how many bad things are happening in the world today? And you know the susceptibility we have when we hear a story. And it's just like, that may happen to me. Why, why are you even thinking that thought? Why is it even getting any entertainment? Don't be hospitable to it. This has no business in the mind and the heart of a Christian. You belong to Jesus. And we'll talk about how Jesus handles his saints. That discomfort you feel in your body is something very serious. I want you to realize I'm the opposite of these thinking patterns. I mean, I, now even naturally, the way I popped out of my mom's womb, this isn't my typical weakness. Yes, I had anxiety, but it wasn't over this. Okay, it wasn't over any physical issues. Mine was like more financial. Uh, you know, guys, girls, you know, you can look at that. Now, I'm not saying that men don't struggle with uh, the physical concerns and anxieties. And I'm not saying that women can't struggle with the financial anxieties. It's just that there is a typification amongst us, and men have a tendency to struggle with the financial sides, and women with the physical side. But for me, if I feel any pain in my body, I mean, you guys should just take a tour with Eric Ludy one day. It's like, no. I give it no time. I completely ignore it. I could care less. And guess what? All the pains go away. They always do. Well, don't you think you need to go into the doctor for that, Eric? No. You see, no one tells me that because I don't tell them about the pain. So I don't even need to hear that line. No. No. Uh-uh. That's the inside of Eric Ludy. I will not be stopped by some ridiculous little pain. Okay, I've had all sorts of little sensitivities in my teeth. You know, those things that happen either when you have a cold coming on or whatever. It's like, no. No. I had little pains in my digestive system. No. Uh-uh. It works. That spot in your body is the first sign of a fatal disease. If I have a spot on my body, what I consider is the fact that Deborah Dew was walking around with a pen that day that was open, and it got on my arm, okay? If you don't do something and, you, and, you, and, if you don't do something and do it now, it will be too late. Hurry! Hurry, run into the temple and close the door. If you don't do it, you'll die. Are you going to fall for this? You are not pushed around by the enemy's agenda. Perfect calm and peace. Think on these things, says God. And that's not one of them. Run for your life. Give sway to panic, fear, dread, and trepidation. Listen to Nehemiah's response and make it your response. And I said, should such a man as I flee? You're a Christian. Would a Christian flee? And who is there that being as I am would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. It's a defiance against that voice. That voice can say all it, all it wants. It can holler as loud as it wants, and you'll say, I'll not go in. I'm not going anywhere. I'm confident in the calling I've received. I'm confident in my position in Jesus Christ. The Jewish mind on preservation this is a difficult scripture for me to use, as you'll soon find out, because it comes from the book of Job. Now, Job is the classic 
picture of the book we wouldn't turn to when we're talking about being fearless. Think about it. You don't go to Job. You don't crack open that one. I mean, this is the one that usually causes most of us to feel like he will come in the night and slay us. But I want you to realize Job is not about being fearful. Job is not about what the enemy can get away with. Job is about a man who was set apart to demonstrate the glory of Jesus Christ. He had a hedge about him, is what it says in Job 1. He had a hedge. The enemy could not touch him. And then in the end, the enemy could not touch him. And this little gap of time in his life was the proving ground before all the heavenlies. Job means hated and despised. That's what his name means, Job. And Utz, the land that he comes from, U-Z, Utz, it means the place of wood. Hated and despised, the place of wood. What does that remind you of? Another great testing point where a man was literally held up before all the heavenlies and his body was racked with pain and he carried a weight that no man should rightfully need to carry. And guess what? The glory of God was made manifest in that situation. Job is a foreshadow of something. Now there's all sorts of things that happen in Job and Job is not the easiest book to handle, okay? I'm not going to try and teach you on Job today or Job as the Hebrews would say it. The Jewish mind on preservation. This is the words of a man named Eliphaz. Now the reason why it's a hard scripture to use is because Eliphaz is one of the three friends. Well, you just want to throw out everything that the, the friends say. However, the friends, the problem with the friends is they assumed that because of the nature of God and because of the way he handles his people, that Job was in sin. That was their great assumption. They came to a conclusion too quickly. And as a result, they did not handle the situation correctly. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everything they said was incorrect. It just means they came to an improper conclusion too quickly. Now, Eliphaz says something here, and I want to define it, even if we want to look at it as external to the Bible, even though it is in the Bible, just as the Jewish mind on preservation. He shall deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven no evil shall touch you. In famine he shall redeem you from death. And in war from the power of the sword, you shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue, and you shall not be afraid of destruction when it comes. You shall laugh at destruction and famine, and you shall not be afraid of the beasts of the earth. For you shall have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is in peace. You shall visit your dwelling and find nothing amiss. You shall also know that your descendants shall be many, and your offspring like the grass of the earth. You shall come to the gravel, the, I'm sorry, you could come to the grave at a full age as a sheaf of grain ripens in its season. Don't you want to take that scripture and run with it? That is one great statement. This is just the Jewish mind. You know that what Job had was exactly this in Job 1 when there was a hedge about him? The Jew has always known that when he is in covenant with the most high God, Jehovah, that he is an untouchable that the things that he does are preserved. Every aspect of his life, if he leaves his home, he doesn't fear that the enemy will ravage his home, but when he comes back to his home, it will be in order. What a, what a mentality. We are so far removed from this today. Now, like I said, since this is the words of Eliphaz, you might be a little, yeah, I don't know if I really want to include that in my, my strong basis of rock beneath my feet. Fair, okay, that's fair. That's why I'm calling it the Jewish mind on preservation. The rest of the Bible says the same thing, by the way. This is just one of the best ways of articulating it, other than the chapter in Psalm, Psalms I'm going to read. 
all men must come up. Do you remember the Feast of Tabernacles? I, I gave a message called Beautified by a Scar, and I mentioned the Feast of Tabernacles. At the Feast of Tabernacles, all the men, for an entire eight-day period, out of all of Israel, had to come up. They had to come to Jerusalem for the festival, for the great feast. Well, just imagine if you're the enemy, and if you know that all the men are coming up for a feast, when are you going to attack? I mean, you could literally plunder their homes in this time. However, here's what God says. You go up, I will preserve your homes. You obey, I'll take care of your life. It's a principle. It's a principle in the Hebrew mind. When you trust your God, when you obey him, and you do that which he has commissioned you to do, he will preserve your home. Wouldn't that change your life if you actually begin to think that way? I mean, this is this is great. However, you don't want to think that way if it's not true. And so we, we hedge in this. We're like, well, I want to have a confidence. Most of us are afraid of what we can call the mystery. There's a mystery, and it floats around in Christianity as if God changes his mind. And with you, he's going to do something odd, something strange. He's going to unplug from his faithfulness, and he's going to dash your life against the rocks. It isn't how God works. God is clear in how he works. He has revealed himself. He has nothing to hide. And he is perfectly faithful. Perfectly faithful. That means that when you put your faith in him, he is perfect in fulfilling that which he has promised. He is faithful. He is everything that faith can trust in. Everything. So when you have faith that is based on biblical premise, you put your confidence in your God and you will not be moved. And that's what immovability is. It's feet fixed on rock. And no matter what's happening around you, you are not shaken. You are not moved. That's what unstoppability is. You realize that God finishes that which he begins. That nothing can actually parry the sword of God. Nothing. God swings his sword. Give me one thing in the entire universe that can stop it. It cuts through everything as if it's butter. The problem is we as the saints of God are the ones entrusted with the sword. And so if we're not the ones swinging it, it's not being swung. We must pick up the sword of Jesus Christ in this generation and begin to swing it. And it will not return void. The Christian mind on preservation. So we did the Jewish mind on preservation. Now I want to discuss the Christian mind on preservation. In White Cross's Antidotes, an old book, it says, Lord Craven lived in London when that sad calamity, the plague, raged. So this is in the times of the plague in London. His house was in that part called Craven Buildings. On the plague-growing epidemic, his lordship, Lord Craven, to avoid the resolved to go to his seat in the country. So he's got his house, his location, his dwelling in the country. His coach... And his six were accordingly his baggage put up and all things in readiness for the journey. As he was walking through his hall with his hat on, his cane under his arm, and putting on his gloves in order to step into his carriage, he overheard his black servant, who served him as a postillion, saying to another servant, I suppose by my Lord's quitting London to avoid the plague that his God lives in the country and not in town. The poor black servant said this in the simplicity of his heart, as really believing a plurality of gods. The speech, however, struck Lord Craven very sensibly and made him pause. My God, thought he, lives everywhere and can preserve me in town as well as in the country. 
I will even stay where I am. The ignorance of that black servant has just now preached to me a very useful sermon. Lord, pardon this unbelief and that distrust of thy providence which made me think of running from thy hand. He immediately ordered his horses to be taken from the coach and the baggage to be taken in. He continued in London, was remarkably useful among his sick neighbors, and never caught the infection. Good story. I like that story. You know how many stories are like this? I had a collection of about, I think it was six more stories from the plague of men and women, Christians, in that time that literally defied the plague under the banner of God's preservation of those that dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. And they were untouched and unscathed, and they were the useful vessels of God in the times of pestilence and plague. Where's the Christian supposed to be in a time of plague? Running? Hiding in the temple? Closing the door lest we be slain? Where are we supposed to be? Where are the confident ones? Everyone else is vulnerable to the natural effects of this world, but a Christian is only vulnerable to his God. Where do you turn in a time of calamity? Because it defines the security of your life here on earth. Satan's least favorite psalm. Now I know I'm making somewhat of a leap, and I can't actually prove that this is Satan's least favorite psalm. It's just a hunch, okay? But I have to admit, in thinking it through, he even re referenced this psalm in his temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. And guess what? He misquoted the psalm. He knows this psalm. And so what he even tried to do with Jesus is he said the psalm, but he eliminated a key line in it, which would cause a wrong effect if Jesus were to agree with it. It's very fascinating how he has misused this psalm even. He knows this psalm. Isn't that a fascinating thought to think that Satan knows uh, the Psalms? Satan knows the entire Bible better than you do? He does, and he'll use it against the saints of God just as much as he'll try and make it so that no one ever opens the book. Satan's least favorite Psalm. Which one is it? Aha! Psalm 91. Okay, now Psalm 91. Don't, don't read anything yet. Psalm 91 is one of those psalms that most modern Christians have no idea what to do with. It's not that they don't like it. Everyone who reads Psalm 91 says, wow, that is extraordinary. But the enemy has three tactics. Either he wants to eliminate the verbiage from Psalm 91, like he did when he was tempting Jesus, and take it out of context and have it be misused towards self-preservation. In other words... Hey, he says that he will bear you up, your, his angels have been given charge over you to bear, bear you up in their wings, or bear, the, bear you up in their hands, lest you even dash your foot against a stone. But the thing that Satan left out was the fact that in all his ways, in other words, you must be in the way of God to be preserved. If you are not in the way of God, if you just go your own errant way to do your own things to test the Almighty, there is no such protection. The enemy knew it, and so he baited Jesus. And Jesus, of course, didn't fall for it, like most of us do. So we have Psalm 91. If Satan cannot eliminate the verbiage in it, then what he wants to do is overly romanticize it, where all of us memorize it and we speak it, but we speak it as mere poetry, not as fact. Because if this is true, I tell you what, your life changes today. 
Third thing that the enemy will try to do is create some type of out through some dispensational notion that that was for a different age, a different period. You have no claim upon its statements. If the enemy can remove it from any application to your soul today, he's won. Okay, so obviously I'm going straight into it. Psalm 91. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers and under His wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flies by day, nor for the pestilence that walks in darkness. Did you just hear that list? You shall not be afraid for the terror by night. Remember, I will come to you and slay you in the night. You shall not be afraid of that. Nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor for the pestilence that walks in darkness. Nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon, shalt thou trample under feet. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high, because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, that is one extraordinary psalm. There's a reason why I say it's the enemy's least favorite. Okay? Because if the Christian lives in light of this reality. Now, there's all sorts of different arguments. Believe me, I, whenever I've stuck my neck out on this point in Christianity, it's, it's attempted to be lopped off. Okay? For some reason, even Christians are skittish about this chapter. Why? It's an interesting question. Well, it's talking about Jesus, is what they'll say. Well, who lives in you? And who do you live in? If it's talking about the body of Christ, well then who are you? You're the body of Christ. It would be a revelation of the church because Jesus is the head of the church. So even if that was the argument, oh, this is just for the Jews, you take any of the statements in there and try and parse them out, you know how many things in here would be very difficult when it says that he is our refuge? He is our habitation? Are those just for the Jews? Actually, that is more us as Christians than anything. Because we are clothed in Christ. We, he actually becomes our strong tower and our refuge. We put on the person of Jesus. I could make an argument that this is more new covenant than old covenant. However, I'm not about to say that it wasn't for the Jews either. In other words, this is truth. This is God in relation to his creation. This is how he works. And it is proven throughout the ages that he works this way. Charles Spurgeon says, A German physician was wont to speak of the 91st Psalm as the best preservation in times of cholera. And in truth, as it is a heavenly medicine against plague and pest. He who can live in its spirit will be fearless. Eh, that's where I got my message title, by the way. 
I loved that line. He who can live in its spirit will be fearless. Oh, that just is the language of my soul right there. Even if once again London should become a laser house and the grave be gorged with carcasses, those that live in the spirit of the 91st Psalm will be fearless. I don't care if a thousand are falling at your side and 10,000 at your right hand. You are not as everyone else. Why? Because you dwell in the shelter of the Most High. You have made the Lord God your habitation. Don't you know the gospel? That's what it is. You know, when you're talking about the shadow of the Almighty, it's a picture of the Holy of Holies. Well, who has been invited into the Holy of Holies? In the Jewish culture, it was only one man. It was the high priest that ever was able to enter in. But who has entered in for us? Jesus Christ. And who are you in? Wait a minute. I'm in Jesus Christ. And where did he go? He went to the right hand of the Father in the shadow of the Almighty. And where does he sit you down? There. If you remain in Jesus and you abide in him, Psalm 91 is your psalm. The fearless legends of yesteryear. Hudson Taylor, laying with the plague. He's caught the disease. Anyone who catches the disease is dead in just a, a day. I mean, you don't have time. You, when he, he was a medical student, he was working on a cadaver, and he accidentally forgot that he had a paper cut the night before. That's all it took was a paper cut. And suddenly Hudson Taylor, his, 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 uh, his medical, uh, whatever you would call it, uh, the man that was over him, teaching him, his instructor, says, go home and get your things in order and prepare to die. That, that's how uh, sensitive he was to poor Hudson in this situation. So Hudson Taylor goes back to his home. He's laying in his bed without any strength. He has nothing. He's just basically going to die. And this is what his soul growls. I know I'm not going to die because I'm called to China. You see, he had a calling upon his life. I don't care what the plague says. I don't care what the natural realm would declare over his body. What does God declare? You see, God is not intimidated by the plague. The plague is intimidated by God. So let's get our facts straight. If you still have a job to do here on earth, you have nothing to fear. One of the greatest moments in Christian history is when Hudson Taylor, still weak, gets up out of bed and sticks his feet on the floor and begins to walk. To walk as a man who is healed even though yet in his body he feels no benefit of the healing. What a moment! And guess who turned China upside down for the gospel? A man named Hudson Taylor. Reese Howes, he's in Africa in a time of great plague and disease. I don't remember which plague it was. Does that, do any of you remember what it was in, in, in Africa? No, no help on that one. Thank you. Uh, and basically, everyone's dying. Everyone is dying. And, and Reese Howell says, anyone on this property will not die of the plague. And he made such a statement, and all the outside world, the, the tribes were watching this, and no one would die on the property, which was a ministry property. It was secured by the blood of Jesus, he declared. And no one that finds refuge here will die. And so guess what? 
The surrounding tribes that didn't even know Jesus began to funnel onto the property to find refuge because whatever the God was that was protecting that property, they knew they needed it because there was no protection outside of it. C.T. Studd, 52 years old, death's doorstep, can hardly function laying in bed, and he hears about the lost and the dying in interior Africa. He raises his hand to heaven and says, God, send me. So he had to get approval with the board, the missionary board, and to get approval with the missionary board, he had to pass a physical exam. He failed the physical exam. They said, we cannot sponsor this, CT. We cannot send you. And he says, well, then God will send me. God will be my strength. How does a man, 52 years old, his body has been racked because he was in interior India, interior China. His body has carried every possible conceivable disease on planet Earth, it seems. And he's going to rise up and say, my job is unfinished. There are still yet those that must hear the gospel. And it is still my watch. God will be my strength. And this man, 20 years in interior Africa, from that point, couldn't even get approved by the medical board to get over there, goes on his own dime, goes in his own strength, empowered by the living God without any missionary board sending him. He says, there's lost I'm going. Amy Carmichael, knowing all the risks, I'm going. She was sickly, and the doctors thought she should never go. She should never leave England, or Scotland is where she was from. She should never go. There are lost, I'm going. You know what? The ones I just named are literally some of the greatest missionaries in all history. And every single one of them that I just mentioned was in a time of great plague and disease. And each one of them rose up in the midst of it with a Psalm 91 fearlessness and marched. Whatever that is, we need it back in the church of Jesus Christ. One of the ones I forgot to put in the list is a lady named Gladys Aylward. Gladys Aylward knew her protection. There's, there's stories of Gladys Aylward being on the most wanted list in China, okay? And could you imagine this? She's like a little five, what was she, four foot ten or something like that? This little teeny thing. She's called the little woman. And she's running through an open field and they see her. And so they're literally shooting gun, uh, bullets at her. And the bullets, for whatever reason, wouldn't hit her. And so when they looked at her clothing afterwards, it was riddled with bullet holes. What in the world? She walked into the middle of a prison riot. These are men with clubs. She comes in and commands them all to go back into their cells. It's a four-foot-ten lady in the middle of a hostile prison riot. Here she is on her way to China, and she's stuck in a, a place, I think it was in Russia. It was a very dire situation. She's in this little hotel room, and the man that owned the hotel realizes he has a, a small little petite woman in there, and he decides he's going to take advantage of her. So he opens her door with his own key, walks in, and she basically said, stop right there. He says, I can do whatever I want. I own this establishment. I'm God to you. And she said, you may not see my God, but my God is here. And he has put up a barrier between me and you. Take one more step forward and find out. And the man shuddered, turned, and left. Whatever that is, we need it back in the church of Jesus Christ. Because it's what causes men and women to no longer live normal lives, but to live super normal lives. 
because you must understand the preservation of your God to carry out the calling you've received. Bellarmine said, we read of a stag that roamed about in the greatest security by reason of its having a label on its neck. Touch me not, I belong to Caesar. Thus the true servants of God are always safe, even among lions, bears, serpents, fire, water, thunder, and tempests. For all creatures know and reverence the shadow of God. Oh boy, that, that has to be one of the greatest quotes right there. A stag running through the forest with a sign on it says, touch me not, I belong to Caesar. Well, who in the right mind wants to touch that stag? Go look for another one. Well, what? What sign do you have hanging around your neck? Touch me not, I belong to Jesus. I know, I recognize your experience. You felt vulnerable. You felt like the enemy can just come in and do whatever he wants. But I want you to realize, when you turn to anything other than Jesus and his shadow in the time of crisis, you become vulnerable to that which is attacking you. You have no ability outside of your shepherd. If you're a sheep and you're over there, and the shadow of your shepherd is right here, it's not just esteeming the shadow. It's not just esteeming your, sh your shepherd from a distance. It's not just knowing that he is able to clobber a wolf. Don't try and attack that wolf in your own strength. Don't turn to any other sheep in a time of difficulty. What do you do? You run, you scamper to the ankle of your shepherd. That's what you do. And in the shadow of your shepherd, you are secure. Always secure. If you have a shepherd and a wolf is coming at you and you're in the shepherd's shadow, you could finish the statement. Of course you're secure. The shepherd doesn't say, well, you know what, today I'm going to give you to the wolf. The shepherd doesn't change his mind and throw his little sheep into the wolf pack. I don't know who's defined your God to you, but that isn't God. God protects and preserves his sheep. He doesn't throw them into the fray. The first turn to the hiding place called God. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. William Bridge says, there is a faith whereby a man does betake himself unto God for shelter, for protection as to his habitation. When other men do run one this way, another that way, to their hiding places, in the time of a plague for a man then to betake himself to God as to his habitation, I think this is the faith here spoken of in this 91st Psalm. In other words, it's a time of plague. And what is the world clamoring after? Safety and security from the plague. Where can you find safety and security from the plague? You have to go to the country. You have to flee where the, where the plague is. However, that's not how a Christian thinks. What does a Christian think? I must flee unto God. I must go under the shelter of the Most High, under the shadow of His wing. That's how we think. I realize it's backwards from the world, but you need to realize how Nehemiah reasoned. Flee. They will slay you in the night. Go hide. Should such a man as I go hide? Nehemiah lived in that shadow. His habitation was the Lord. He need not look for a human contraption to protect him. He was secure in the Almighty. You must understand that. 
You must turn in the time of crisis, in the time of calamity, to your God. And that is where the preservation is. Everything in Psalm 91 flows out of this. If you run to any other shadow, if you run to any other shelter, you find refuge any, in any other thing, any other confidence, you do not have the benefits of Psalm 91. Now follow me. If the plague is here in Windsor and you run to Fort Collins, yes, in the natural sense, you will be more secure. However, you are not benefited with Psalm 91. You are benefited only with the natural law that you are working under. You are working under a natural law that says if you do not touch the plague, you will, be sur you will survive. That's natural law. Supernatural law says if you are in my shadow, you will be spared. A thousand can fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Thou shalt not be afraid. Psalm 91.5. What a great line. You know what follows this is everything that could possibly be bad follows this line. Thou shalt not be afraid. Musculus says, not only do the pious stand safe, they are not even touched with fear. For the prophet does not say, thou shalt not be seized, but thou shalt not be afraid. Certainly such a confidence of mind could not be attributed to natural powers. In so menacing and so overwhelming a destruction, for it is natural to mortals, it is implanted in them by God, the author and maker of nature, to fear whatever is hurtful and deadly, especially what visibly smites and suddenly destroys. Therefore does he beautifully join together these two things, the first in saying, thou shalt not be afraid, the second by adding, for the terror. He acknowledges that this plague is terrible to nature. And then by his trust and divine protection, he promises himself the security that he shall not fear the evil, which would otherwise make human nature quail. We do not fear that which other men will fear. Yes, you could look at it in the natural and say, well, it's a calamity. It's a plague. It's only natural to fear. And, and everyone could nod and say, yes, it is natural to fear. But you live after a supernatural pattern. You live under the shadow of the Almighty, and therefore you are secure in this supernatural pattern. Don't you realize what it means to be a Christian? The body of Christ in hostile territory. Now what I'm going to do here is, remember how I started and I said, well, if this is referring to Jesus, which it is, it is Psalm 91 is, is referring to Jesus. There's no doubt about it. Who lives in the shadow of the Almighty and has made God his habitation more than Jesus Christ did? Everything he did was of the Father. Everything he spoke was of the Father. He exemplified the way that we ought to live. However, what did he purchase on that cross? He purchased the avenue through which we could also live that life. Now, if that is his preservation, why in the world would we suddenly presume that we are outside of it and now vulnerable to a thousand foes? Who comes up with that logic? It doesn't even make sense. So the body of Christ in hostile territory. This is a collection from the book of John. You'll notice quite a collection. And it's basically showing that the body of Christ was preserved. And you could say, but he, he was sweating great drops of blood in Gethsemane, and he was turned over and scourged at the hand of the Romans. And then he was literally nailed to a cross and suffered greatly. Uh-huh. But they didn't take him. He gave himself. I want you to realize... There's a big difference between being taken by the enemy 
and giving yourself to the purposes of God to rescue the weak. God makes you strong and he preserves your strength in order that he might spill you, but in agreement with your own soul. I know what I'm in for as a Christian, but I know that I'm preserved to my end. I know that the enemy cannot give me an untimely death. I know he can't. I know I'm here until my race is done. And I don't care what needs to be defied in this natural realm to make that happen, it will be. And so therefore, I do not fear what the enemy can do to me. I don't. I trust my God. However, I'm basically confident I'm going to die a martyr's death. Isn't that a funny conclusion to that great statement? In other words, in the end, I know that my body might not look the same way it does now when it reaches the grave. It might have slits and slashes and things cut off from it. I don't know, but I don't care. My job is to trust my God, that he will carry me to my end. And when it comes to that day when God says, will you give me your body, that it might be spent for the rescue of the weak. Take it. It belongs to you, Lord Jesus. But it's God that takes it, not the enemy. This is the collection. Then they sought to take him, speaking of Jesus, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. Ah, that's an interesting statement. Because his hour is not yet come. These words spoke Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. How does he do that? How does he just somehow pass by? It says he hid himself. Now, most of us look at him as a coward in that situation. Anything but. What are you going to do in a time of calamity? Hide yourself in him. It's exactly what he's doing. He is secured and preserved. And then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Therefore, they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. This is just quite the story in the book of John. Now, both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any knew where he were, he, would sh he should show it, that they might take him. What was the entire agenda of the chief priests and the Pharisees? Take him. Kill him. Push him off a cliff. They tried everything. Stoning, pushing him off a cliff. They wanted to grab a hold of him and destroy this man. And guess what? They could not touch him. Now, what I'm doing with this is I'm saying the body of Christ... This is the body of Christ. What you're witnessing is how the body of Christ lives in this natural realm. Right here. Okay, now I know you're saying, well, that's the body of Jesus. What? What's the difference? The body of Jesus is you. You are his body. Why in the world do we create this discrepancy to think that we are suddenly vulnerable when he wasn't? You know that when you follow him, you get treated the same way he was? Which means on this side, you're treated the same way. And on the other side, you'll also have crosses erected in your honor. Acts 28. Here's another picture of the body of Christ. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on a, the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Oh, no. No, not a viper. You know what? This is a poisonous viper. And every one of the uh, indigenous people on this island knew it. Paul was going to die. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, thou he has escaped, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. But what does Paul do? I love this. This is such an understatement. Paul has a, a viper that is literally hanging from his hand. So here's what I picture his face looking like. It's like, oh, come on. 
he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Uh, whoa? Well, that's Paul. What is Paul? Paul is the body of Christ. Paul is literally, the, he has made his habitation the most high God. And who lives inside of him? Jesus. And he is seated in the heavenly places. All the one that teaches us, all the gospel that we train here at Ellerslie is that man. The one who literally threw off the viper into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. You know, definitely swing in the pendulum. Luke 10, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, here's one of the interesting things about the Christian life. First of all, most of us have a tough time even believing that to start with. Who said it? Jesus. You say, oh, he's only talking to the apostles. And so what did we get? The raw deal? Everything will hurt us. We can't tra trample upon the enemy. We have no authority over the enemy. Only the apostles did. If that was the church of Jesus Christ, we would be utterly pathetic. You've got to be kidding me. We all know what this is talking about, but we don't know how to appropriate this. It just sounds too Marvel Comics, too movie, Hollywood-esque. What are you supposed to do with that? Look at this. It says serpents and scorpions. And then it says over all the power of the enemy. It's dealing with two different dimensions. You see, we have three different dimensions that will affect our lives here on earth. We have the natural realm, we have the spiritual realm, but in broken up into two parts. We have the dark side and we have the light side. We have Lucifer's agenda and we have King Jesus' agenda over our life. You know that all of those things are affecting your body here on earth? And a lot of us feel just susceptible to a cold floating through the, the air or through a plague that is sweeping through the land. We're susceptible. After all, it's the natural side of things. The natural side is covered. I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. Yes, scorpions. I mean, God created them, right? And they sting you. In other words, they're not very friendly to have around. You don't want a scorpion in your bed because it'll harm you, not because Satan's inspiring it and filling it. It's because that's just what it does after its nature. Okay, Satan doesn't have to fill a piranha to have it go after you and try and bite off your finger. It just is after nature bent towards that end. Okay, so nature, there's all sorts of natural effects in this world that want to tread upon you. And they will if you put up no resistance. But when you are facing the lion, the bear, the adder, the dragon, as it says in Scripture, you are not to fear. You tread on them. That's a little awkward. It's like telling a little lamb. You see that wolf pack over there? Go tread upon them. You see, lambs don't tread upon wolf packs any more than we tread upon lions, bears, adders, dragons, scorpions. We run from them. We close the door and hide. And God says, no, you're one of mine. March onward, upward. You fear not anything. Christianity. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. What an interesting line. Now, in some of the modern translations, remove Mark 16. I, by the way, my opinion on that is it's absolutely ridiculous to remove Mark 16. All the early church fathers reference Mark 16. 
This has always been part of the canon. Okay, that's just my opinion thrown in. But you can see why they want to remove it. They don't know what to do with this. Their experience testifies to weakness. And yet, what does the Bible say? The natural realm and the supernatural realm. No matter what they conspire against you, they actually cannot harm you. Wow! What should we expect in our bodies? A quick overview of the cross as it relates to the human body. What are you supposed to expect? Here I have given you this seeming di dichotomy where I say, the enemy cannot harm me, the enemy cannot touch me. I am unstoppable in this realm as a Christian and us as the body of Christ. This is the truth of us as a corporate body and as individuals. And yet, I expect to die a martyr. In other words, the enemy's probably going to get his grimy hands on me someday. Well, what kind of twist is that? If you're pre preserved, you're preserved. You can't get taken away by the enemy. You're either the plaything of the enemy or not. Eric, you have to give a straight message here. They're both true. But I'm preserved unto that day. And that day when I am taken into prison or I am to suffer and to be tortured, guess what? I'm prepared for that day. I'm made strong for that day. And I gladly give myself to that day with rejoicing in my heart. It's a privilege. And I, if you, if you need to go back to some of my old messages and hear what a privilege it is to suffer for the Lord Jesus, you can go back to a whole bunch of them. I have loads of them. The, the message, Extraordinary Courage, is a message about how to die well. In other words, I'm expecting to die. And you could say, what? Eric, I thought you said you were a Christian. Christians should be preserved and they should never die. What are reasonable expectations for the human body that you live in? A quick overview of the cross as it relates to the human body. First of all, let's go through the purchase of the cross. The, it was to purchase the earthy, corruptible body to rescue the inner man. God came and with his blood, he purchased your body. That's what it says in scripture. However, your body is not that impressive. Some of you are laden down with all sorts of physical ailments even now, and Jesus purchased that? What kind of purchase was that? Hope he didn't spend too much for my body. Why did he go after your body? Because he's after your inner man. Your body is the carrying device, and he bought the whole kit and caboodle. He bought the body so he could gain the inner man and so that he could rescue the inner man. This body is not your long-term home, but you are long-term. Your body is not eternal, but you are. He's after you, but to get you, he got your body. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. G-O-D apostrophe S means possessive. God owns your body and your spirit. Whole kit and caboodle with his blood. So at the cross, he clothed the sin-corrupted man in Christ. He severed the flesh, the great corrupter from the inner man. He buried the old sin-corrupted man and supplied the newness of incorruptible life in Christ Jesus to the inner man. And he brought the newly clothed spiritual man to the Father. And he positioned the newly clothed spiritual man. The heavenlies. Okay, this is the work of the cross. And those that have gone through discipleship here at Ellerslie understand each step of this in great detail. The cross is about positioning your inner man in Christ Jesus in the heavenlies. However, you're still in a body. The in Jesus was the way. He's the way to the Father. And so when you get into Jesus, he goes to the cross, and he deals with your problem known as the flesh. Then he's buried, 
and he buries your old behavior. Then he's raised to newness of life, and he gives you newness of life in him. Then he ascends. Where'd he, where'd he go? He went to the Father. And who did he take there? Those that are in him. And those that are in him find their way into the holy of holies, into the shadow of the Almighty. And then the Father bequeaths the very life of God, the very spirit of God into, get this, into our bodies. So the infilling is to fill the earthy, corruptible body to enable the inner man. So your inner man is rescued. It is positioned, but now it has a job to do. You are supposed to live in this corruptible, earthy body a supernatural life. You have this dead weight known as the body, and you can't get out of it. Isn't that funny? You're like stuck in this thing called the body, and yet you have this newness of life and a body. And so God fills this body, this mortal body, this earthy body with his spirit so that the inner man would be strengthened to live the way he ought to live inside this earthy, corruptible body. I'm not trying to criticize your body. I think your body is really nice. But I want you to realize your body is aging. Your body is going to die in this natural realm, and that's not a problem. So even though it sounds like it's a criticism, it's just a fact. God did not yet give you a new body. He gave you a new man inside. He has resurrected you inside to newness of life. However, your body still stinks. Okay? Now, again, I'm not trying to criticize your body. I'm just saying your body is still mortal. It will die. And I want you to realize that's not something to panic about. Wait till you see Paul's perspective on it. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Know you not that you are the temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. And so, the infilling, the purchase of the body, then the infilling of the body, then the enabling of the body. This is one of my favorite things right here. In other words, it's not just that you were given the Spirit of God, but you have this husk known as you, this body. And it's not an eternal body. It's a temporal body. It's a holding place. But this body has to get the job done. Isn't that an amazing thought? This body, though it is weak, though it is frail, though that it is susceptible to all the factors of natural law in this world, plague, calamities, pestilence, pest, though it is susceptible, it somehow is the vehicle that needs to carry out the great commission of Jesus Christ. So what's God going to do? Is he going to just let you fall apart at the seams and have this inner life just have to just go to heaven then, obviously, because once the outer core fades away, that's the only place you have to go. It's to be with Jesus. You go, oh, please. Yeah, that's what Paul said. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Get this husk off me. However, Paul knew that to live is Christ. And he had everything he needed to live this life and to live it well. So the enabling is to equip the earthy, corruptible body for the Great Commission to carry the heavenly man into all this earth. So this great Jesus now infills us, but what good are we if we're sitting in a bed hacking and coughing all day long? What good are we? We need this body to function as it ought to function so that we can carry out our commission. Boy, I'm flying in the face of all sorts of uh, thoughts with this one. I'm just saying this is the way it works. I'm not inventing things. I'm saying this is how it works. This is how it's worked throughout the ages. 
You have a job to do. How do you expect to do the job? You're laying in bed with a plague. You're called to China. How do you expect to carry out your job? Do you just yield to the plague and say, hey, the plague just wins here on earth. God wins here on earth. I am called to China, to China I will go. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. See, there's the mortal body. Paul even says it, but he says, let not sin reign inside of it. So the principle of sin, the purpose of sin, the effects of sin, do not let it reign in this body. That you should obey it in the lusts thereof. In other words, God knows that you still have a mortal body. He knows. But what has he given you? He's equipped you with everything you need to not let it sin reign inside of it. What has he given you? He's given you grace. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. In other words, you have good works that you're supposed to be performing. How are you going to perform it? You need to be enabled to perform it. How are you going to be enabled? You get grace. You get the very life of God within that equips this mortal body to function as it ought to function in this hostile territory. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his grace, which was bestowed unto me, was not in vain. But I labor abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. What labored more than anything? It was the grace of God in Paul that was laboring. You have an impossible commission. You are living in hostile territory. And this world and this devil will destroy you if you do not dwell in the shadow. But if you dwell in the shadow of the Almighty, nothing can hurt you. Nothing can stop you. Nothing can hinder your course. The transforming. So we had the purchase. We had the infilling. We had the enabling. And now we have the transforming. Transform the corruptible body into an incorruptible one. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. By the way, we've talked about 1 Corinthians over the past, I don't know, six months, talking about it's a pastor's worst nightmare. And almost every chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians is a tripping point. And 1 Corinthians 15 is no different. It's talking about the resurrection body. And it's a sticky one. You need to realize that. However, it is very clear in what it says. It's just a little awkward. Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. And you can say, well, didn't that happen on the cross? It did. But not in the physical side of things. In other words, Jesus accomplished something, and it is done. It is finished. But now the saints of God must bring it forth to this earth. And what is their great prayer? The Spirit and the bride say, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and put your feet down on this earth where this natural realm will be beneath your actual physical feet the spiritual side is one, and we must prove it as Christians. The physical side is still yet to be completely brought under the feet of Jesus. Even though it is under his feet, it must be realized fully in the natural realm. And it says, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. But someone will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. Paul is actually referring to your body as a seed. 
you have a body, it's an encasement for something. And that something on the inside is what matters in a seed. And when this body is sown, then what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And then what God intended your life to be fully for all eternity will come forth. This is a temporal house. And it's not bad when it's sown for the resurrection body is that which you will then have. I'm not exactly sure what this resurrection body is like, but it's a lot better than this one from what I understand. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. You do not yet have the spiritual body, but you have the spiritual man. You have something, but you don't have the full yet. So to understand this contextually in the Christian life, to understand, am I supposed to live forever? How is this supposed to work? Because he is the resurrection of the life. How does this work? What do we accept in the soul? Do we accept fear? Do we accept pride? Do we accept lust? Of course not. You repel it. You repel the effects of sin. You are given strength to live, therefore, why would you accept fear? Why would you accept pride? Why would you accept lust? Now, that's novel to most Christians today. They're like, well, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to accept it. I thought that was just normal. Well, Christianity 101 is that you are given the armament and the defense of Jesus Christ so that these things no longer rule your soul. It says in Romans, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you would obey it in the lusts thereof. What can we accept? What do we accept in the body then? So if we know we're not supposed to accept those things in the soul, what do we accept in the body? Do we accept weakness? Do we accept tiredness? Do we accept sickness? Do we accept disease? Do we accept the deadly poison of the viper? Isn't that an interesting question? Do we accept it? I mean, it's just happening. I mean, I'm weak. I'm feeling weak. I'm feeling tired. I'm feeling a bit sick here. Eh, disease just sort of comes upon us all. You know, I, we're all susceptible to it, are we? I want you to realize the Christian, if he's not accepting fear, he's not accepting pride, he's not accepting lust, the Christian doesn't accept these things either. I'm not afraid of these things. I'm not. I don't walk around wondering when I might be struck with tiredness. I know my natural body and I know its weaknesses. I know its susceptibility to weakness, to tiredness, to sickness and disease. And I know what a deadly viper can do to me. I understand those things. It's not that I'm in wishful thinking land. However, I know I have a calling. And I know that that calling will not be circumvented by any of these things. And so I have a bulldog attitude towards how my body is going to work. It's not my new body. It's not my resurrected body. My body stinks. And my body throws me a lot of curveballs. So it forces me to be on my toes to say, no, I'm going through this life and I'm going to be strong for the purposes of my king. And nothing is going to hinder my course. What do we expect in faith today? We know what we can expect in the, in the future. In other words, we'll have resurrected bodies. What do we expect today? Do we expect to live forever and never die? You know, there's some Christians that have come to that conclusion, and I would say, well, that's a direct affront to what Scripture says. Scripture is not, you know, all concerned about the fact that you may die. It says you will. Usually it's calling in the New Testament falling asleep in Christ, but the concept is you are going to sow this natural body to reap a spiritual one. This is good news, by the way, to live 
is Christ, but to die is gain. Paul's not all concerned fretting about it. There is no fear in death. Do we expect not to age? That'd be an interesting little thing we could promote in our world today. Hey, if you come to our church, you will not age. It's a good way to build a megachurch right there. We will age. Our bodies are still mortal. And though they are mortal, they still are able to carry forth their task and their duty. Do we expect that when we suffer for, for doing good that our bodies may remain perfectly healthy? When you suffer for doing good, did you know, if, if, if I'm in a in a prison, and they cut off my left hand. You know that my left hand gets cut off? That's just how it works. Now, God can preserve you. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're thrown in the fiery furnace. He can preserve you amidst the fire, just like he preserved John amidst the boiling oil. The apostle John was thrown into boiling oil and pulled out unscathed. However, the other 11 apostles, when they were dragged behind chariots, when they were beheaded, when they were crucified, they were crucified. They were beheaded. They were dragged behind chariots. They weren't just floating through the air when James was knocked off the top of the temple, guess what? He died. And it wasn't bad. It was known as a martyrdom. And guess what? The church increased as a result. This has never been a bad thing in the church of Jesus Christ. Unlocking the conundrum. A conundrum is a confusing question. One that most people just avoid. The conundrum. You have the creation, the calamity, the cross, the campaign, and the coming. What I'm going to say is the human body is one of our great conundrums. How do we expect the human body to live? Do we pray for healing? I mean, this is just a mortal body. Why should I expect it to be anything but a mortal body? Why should I expect it not to house disease? Why should I expect it not to be sick? I mean, it's just mortal, that's just what it does. We can understand why our spirit man would not get sick with sin, but our body, that's confusing. And so let's walk through it real quick. First, the creation. The physical body was created at creation. I know that's not a new sentiment to you, but the spiritual man was then quickened. So we have the physical man, the natural man, and we have the spiritual man, both at creation. So these two are created. You have an outer man or the natural, and then you have the inner man, the spiritual. The spiritual man is quickened. Life reigns on earth. Health is the constant state of every natural being. Anyone argue that? I mean, atrophy or the breakdown or decomposition had not entered in because sin had not entered into the world. And that's why we had I mean, just extraordinary, seemingly unnatural life lengths back then, even after sin first entered in. In other words, these men were built to live. There is no barrier to intimacy with the Creator. And we have the calamity. The human soul fails at the tree. Spiritual man dies. Death now reigns in the physical universe. Death and corruption in the spiritual lives of men. The cross. Jesus died in the midst of the physical universe. Isn't that a fascinating statement? Jesus actually came into this physical universe, and that's where he died. Destroyed the powers of sin and death, subjugated the powers of earth and hell, annulled the covenant of death, and supplied a new covenant for the believer in his blood, purchased everything needed for life and godliness for the believer. Now, I, I could go into these in great detail. I'm just skimming over it. The campaign. This is where you and I are at now. We aren't at the cross we're in the campaign. We're in the season between his coming and his cross. We're in the great campaign. That's what I'm calling it. It's the coming kingdom where we are literally bringing thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Something is accomplished in heaven because of the cross. And it's the saints of God that must reach up and grab that something and bring it down to this earth. 
the world looks and acts the same, almost as if nothing has changed since the cross. This is the first great, great test of the Christian. Look around you. Does it look like God's in control, that God is seated on high and rules over the nations with an iron scepter? No. In fact, we're weak. This is the first great test of a Christian. Though the natural realm will boast, and though the physical universe may boast, that the cross is of no effect. In fact, some will even say it didn't even happen, that it's all myth. We rise up as Christians and say, it not only did happen, but I'm going to prove its power in my life. Those that believe are the hunted, despised, hated, persecuted, tempted, buffeted, tried to the uttermost, imprisoned, tortured, falsely accused, and slandered. Isn't that a fun list to have? Wait a minute, I thought Jesus was victorious. We are in the midst of hostile territory. So we must understand that. Why is Psalm 91 important? Because we are in the midst of terror. We are in the midst of calamity and pestilence and pest. We are the hunted. If you have reason to fear and if you, fear, if you think that these pestilence and these pests can reach you, then you will not be as you are called to be on this earth. Though the cross work is finished, the work of grace is in full swing. For that which was purchased must now be brought to this earth in and through the operation of faith. The Christian can't seek ease. We must take the battle to the enemy. We must prove the great victory of the cross in this natural realm. For the human soul is not yet free from the battle of this sinful world. However, it is free to finally win the battle with sin in this sinful world. And is thus bequeathed with all power and authority to become super conquering, immovable and invincible, fearless and unstoppable. The human soul, though still engaged in a battle with eternal consequence, is given grace by which to triumph and let not sin reign any longer in its territory. Now here's the human body, because this is the one. Most of us, at least here at Ellerslie, are fairly well groomed in how the human soul works. But the human body, the human body, like the human soul, is not yet free from the battle with the influences and deadly effects of the natural world. And I think all of us could agree with that. The human soul still is tempted and still is tried by the enemy. Okay? We still have fiery darts being shot at it. Just because you came to Jesus doesn't mean that the battle ceased. And same with the body. The body is still under siege as well. It's not yet free from the battle with the influences and deadly effects of the natural world. Whereas the cross did make a way for us to one day don a new and incorruptible body, we still as yet, though believing, don the elder form of our bodies, which are corruptible, always aging, and bent toward decomposition. Sorry, don't take it personally. However, though our bodies may prove weak, unfit, vulnerable, and wholly unsatisfactory for this engagement called the Christian Commission, we have been bequeathed, that means given, grace for this battle. And therefore, our elder bodies, or our natural bodies, though far from ideal, are equipped to live triumphantly, ever faithful and ever strong for the purposes of Jesus Christ in the midst of this natural world. And though we fully realize that our current bodies are heading toward the grave, we recognize that they cannot go there until our work is finished here on this earth. Okay, I'm going to read that again just for all of you that are starting to glaze over. Listen to this. And though we fully recognize that our current bodies are heading toward the grave, we recognize that they cannot go there until our work is finished here on this earth. The coming king, the natural physical realm wholly bowed down and declaring Jesus Lord. 
So we have the cross, we have the calamity, we have the campaign, and then we have the coming king. Jesus is coming, and at his coming, death will be his final statement. Under his feet will be death, and that will happen at his coming. And that is when you will get your resurrected body. It is at his coming. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. The final crowning jewel is your body will be changed. And so when everyone tries to, when, when some Christians will try to say that your body is now the new body, it's not true. Your body is the old body. You have a new man inside of this old body. And yet God will equip this old body to carry this new man into the earth. The current realities of the human soul. Still subject to the pleas of emotion. The human soul is still subject to the pleas of emotion experienced in the baits of human philosophies. It is at war. Though rescued from the oppressions of sin, it remains in hostile territory and must exert the authority vested in Jesus Christ in order to function properly in this realm, in this time. We know that temptations will come, but we are to flee from them. We know that the temptations do not come from God. So our posture is combative and not receptive to the lions, bears, leopards, scorpions, and serpents that seek to destroy our souls. Now, most of us are confident with that. When a lion, a bear, a leopard, a scorpion, or a serpent engages your soul, you hit it in the teeth. You not accept it. Don't accept lust, fear, pride, greed. No, you're a Christian. The current realities of the human body. The spiritual side of man and the physical side of man are slightly different in how they appropriate the cross work. Whereas the spiritual man is born again, made new and completely refurbished by the power of rescuing grace, the outer body of that man is still the elder version. It is still exposed to the outside world, which is still ruled by the principle of sin and a downward physical pull towards deterioration. It is still beneath the tyranny of natural law, which states that all things head towards death and decomposition. The outward body of a man is noted in the Bible to be changed at the second coming of Christ and not at the first coming. But the first coming of Christ offers us a grace over the power of sin. Okay, this is a good part here. Okay, these next two screens are some of my favorites. Thus we are equipped with a supernatural power to accomplish that to which we are called in this body in the time span we are allotted by God. If we need physical strength for our task, it is available to us. If we need physical health for our task, we will certainly get it. If we need to defy death for a season, we will defy death for a season. We have a calling. We will fulfill that calling. Why? Because God gets the final say of his children, not the enemy. If it is not yet your time, it is not yet your time. And I don't care if they throw you into a vat of boiling oil, you will come out unscathed. I don't care if they throw you into a fiery furnace, you will come out unscathed. If it is not your time, it is not your time. The enemy cannot harm you. He cannot take you. He cannot hinder you. And you must rise up and take it. The Paul mentality. Though they seek to kill me, though deadly poison is injected into my body, though they stone me, though they scourge me, Though I'm shipwrecked, though they imprison me, though a thousand fall at my side and ten thousand at my right hand, I am untouchable, immovable, unshakable, fearless, and utterly unstoppable in the midst of this enemy territory. My inner man is made new and infused with the new wine of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, but this new life is born about in this old dying body amidst an old dying world. 
you have a new wineskin inside. It's called you. And inside that new wineskin is put new wine. It's the very spirit of God. However, there's an old dying body, a decrepit body that houses that new wineskin and that new wine. You are literally the carrying device and the vehicle on this earth that is carrying this triumphant grace and this extraordinary message that will turn the world on its head. This body, this pitiful body, is the thing that's doing it. And it's in this old dying world. You know this world is going to be burned up? It will. This world will be burned up, just like this body. It's not the end. There will be a new body, there will be a new heavens, and a new earth. However, this one must be sown to get that new one. That's the principle of the kingdom. Listen to Paul's final statement. And yet, in this old body, in this old dying earth, I march forth with supernatural energy that defies my physical weakness, living with fearless abandon, tireless unction, scaling cliffs of impossibility with all the nonchalance of a soul, wholly kept by the power of almighty grace. So you could say, well, Paul lived differently than we ever could. Well, then look at what it says in Philippians 4. Those things which you have both heard, I'm sorry, those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. There it is. Do those things. The Paul mentality, well, you saw it, you heard it, you just read it, do it. This is the mentality of the Christian. This is how we think. This is how we reason. This is the twice-born life. I know you're in an old body, in an old dying world, but you have a new man within you. You have the life of Jesus Christ within you to carry this old body into this world and to see this old body be able to go the distance to carry forth the great message that is bubbling forth within you. They err who measure life by years with false or thoughtless tongue. Some hearts grow old before their time. Others are always young. It is not the number of the lines on life's fast-filling page. It is not the pulse's added throbs which constitute their age. Some souls are serfs among the free while others nobly thrive. They stand just where their father stood dead even while they live. Others all spirit, heart, and sense. There's the mysterious power to live in thrills of joy or woe a 12-month in an hour. I want us as Christians to live 12 months in every hour. The rest of the world can live as serfs. We want to live as the free. We want to live as the noble. We have the privilege of living in the shadow of the Almighty, and we will not back down to what this world and what this devil wants to boast about and threaten us with. He can say he will slay us in the night, but he is a liar, and he knows he cannot touch you. But you must know he cannot touch you. He liveth long who liveth well. All other life is short and vain. He liveth long who can tell of living most for heavenly gain. He liveth long who liveth well. All else is being flung away. He liveth long who can tell of true things truly done each day. You might not live long, but live it well. And if you live it well, according to Horatius Bonard, you're living long. A long life is a fully lived one. If you live 12 months in every hour, boy, by the age of 33 when Jesus died, I mean, that's a, like a Methuselah type of life. 
you live life to the fullest degree. And here's my commission to you. You don't back down to fear. There is no reason in your soul ever in all the rest of your days on earth that you should ever subside, that you should ever relinquish, that you should ever yield to the voice of fear. Fear is sin, and it was conquered at the cross. It has no legal right, no authoritative right to enter your body if you are in Christ Jesus. You must exert the authority that is vested in that shadow of that Almighty. And you must say, because of Jesus, you have no hold on me. And you know it. Repel it. Your body is the carrying device. I don't want you to fear what the enemy can do to your body. I want you to know what God can do to sustain and preserve your body for the call. I don't want to make this message all weird. I'm not trying to just talk about divine healing. People get all upset whenever I bring up the topic. But I want you to realize, God must carry this mortal vessel through this fight. And he has promised to do so. And so you must have confidence that he will enable this body to go the distance and to live this life well. Let's pray. Precious King of Kings, make us your fearless brigade. Though we are lambs, give us the faces of lions, that we would not back down to the enemy's boasts, but that we would rise up with all the confidence of the twice-born. Lord Jesus, you are faithful and true. Do this in us and do this in this generation. It's in the precious name of our great King that we pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.